What we have here in these three chapters is another set of miscellaneous laws. We've seen this throughout the book of Numbers. We've been outlining it geographically, where we began with a camp section at Mount Sinai, and then there was another travel portion. Then in the middle, they were camped at Kadesh Barnea, another travel portion. Now they are camped at the plains of Moab. And in each of the camp sections, there's been stories. Book has mostly been stories. But there's also been uh, some additional laws or some clarifying laws that are being given in addition to the book of Leviticus and the end of Exodus as we've seen so far. Chapter 28 and 29 is basically the calendar of necessary sacrifices that they were to offer. It's given to the new priest, Eleazar, preparing to enter the land without Moses. Remember, the last chapter was the new generation stepping up. Joshua was anointed to lead the people. God has already told Moses his time is short and he will not be entering the promised land. So then there's a review and a reminder of of the offerings that the priest is supposed to offer every year. Then in chapter 30, there's going to be a discussion of vows, vows that are offered to the Lord. And there's special attention given to how a woman's vow requires the approval of the male authority figure in her life, either by silence or by approval. And what I'm I'm going to look at how we go through this here, how we're going to break this down, is that it is through the basics of spiritual routine that we are guarded against major spiritual failure. If we want to talk about an issue that we're going to discuss today, which is the deterioration of the relationship between the sexes, the eroding of gender roles, the deterioration of marriage, and we want to do that without restoring, you might say, the regular sacrifice, the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly sacrifices. If we're not going to be worshiping the Lord in the everyday, we're not going to make any progress in correcting some of these big problems that we see. You can't aim all of your ammunition at those issues. You've got to get to the root of it, which is routine. And I'm using that word and words like religion tonight in very positive senses because they carry that idea of everyday work. You got to do it every day. It's like spiritual deadlifts. It's like making your morning coffee that you're taking care of business. If you build your religion on the fundamentals of worship, like you build a great sports team on the fundamentals, right? You're not going to be tempted when the unrighteousness comes. You'll be able to overcome. If you just try to rise to the occasion and beat the big bad, it's not going to work. It's got to start by these every day, every week, every month, every year routines that we ought to do. So let's start by looking at chapter 28, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to go through 28 and 29 pretty fast. And we're going to do some application when we get to the end of it. We'll start with chapter 28, 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hin of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place, you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. 
Like the grain offering of the morning and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So this is the sacrificial calendar. Why here? Probably because we've just seen the changing of the guard and the Lord is letting them know nothing has changed in this regard. And uh, we're going to see that this is from the priestly perspective. It does, it's not going to give us much of the r- ritual or the routine or the, or the special things that were done on each of the individual days. It's just basically going to give you a list of critters that need to be sacrificed. And the first ones we find are the daily sacrifices. I don't have slides for you tonight. I apologize. But if you're taking notes, the first one is the daily sacrifice, morning and evening. The Bible is full of references to the morning sacrifice or the evening sacrifice. We read on Sunday that Daniel was, uh, was visited by the angel Gabriel at the time of the evening sacrifice. Well, that's what this is right here. This involved at morning and then at evening, one male lamb, which was a year old, as a burnt offering, which meant it would have been totally consumed. And every burnt offering, as you know from reading Leviticus, would have included a grain offering, which means you take a a kind of bread, flour, whether it was baked, whether it was powdered, is is irrelevant. There are different ways of doing it. You would add oil to it, and you would add frankincense to it, and that would be burned as well. As well as then a drink offering, where you would take the libation, whatever it was, and you would pour it out. Interesting, the word for strong drink there in verse 7 for the drink offering is not the usual word for wine. It's, it is a word refers to some kind of strong alcohol, and I believe it was Ugaritic, which is a cognate language. It was their word for beer. So it appears that there was some kind of flexibility in what was offered in the tabernacle. There's not really a lesson much more than that. I just thought it was interesting. The point is it would be poured out, and that's what a drink offering was for. So every morning and every evening, if you want to know what the details of these rituals were, burnt offerings and so on, Leviticus chapter 1 through 7, we went through them in great detail. But you've got to know what these things are if you want to understand your Bible when it references them. So that's the daily offering. Let's move on to the weekly offerings now in verses 9 and 10. On the Sabbath day, two male lambs, a year old without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath, besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So the Sabbath day, of course, every Saturday, every seventh day, all they're doing is they're doubling the daily offering. They're doing the same thing in the morning and the evening. They're just doubling it up. So two lambs, two measures of oil, two measures of grain. And this was to honor the Sabbath day, which we've discussed in great detail. This was a day of solemn rest, just like in Genesis 2, verse 3, when God rested after creating the world. Now we move on to the monthly sacrifices in verse 11. At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bowls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish, also three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil for each bull, two-tenths of a fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with oil for the one ram, and a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb. For a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hin of wine for a bull, a third of a hin for a ram, and a quarter of a hin for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Okay, if you ever see a reference in the Bible to the new moon ceremony, this is what they're talking about. Every month they would celebrate the new moon festival. Do you remember in the book of 1 Samuel when Saul is trying to trap David 
but what David does is he goes home to celebrate the new moon with his family. That's the excuse for him to get a head start and to run away. But this is the, the monthly offering. So they would do the regular thing with the, with the lamb that was a year old and the grain and the oil and then the strong drink. They also would offer another set of burnt offerings. And you might want to write this one down because we're going to see this list a lot in these chapters. Two bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs. So two, one, and seven, and each had a proportional grain and drink offering that would be really large for the bull, and it would get smaller as it got down to the lambs. So two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs. In addition to all of that, there was one goat as a sin offering at the beginning of every month. A sin offering was to atone for wrongdoing. A burnt offering was just an act of worship. It's kind of the baseline sacrifice. A sin offering is to atone for any wrong that has been done in the previous month. And there was a whole different ceremony that went into that that you can look up. And once more, all of this is in addition to what we've already seen. So if the new moon fell on the Sabbath day, you would offer the daily offering, the weekly offering, and the monthly offering at the same time. Now we're going to get into the annual sacrifices, the yearly sacrifices, which are the feasts and the festivals that we saw back in Leviticus 23, starting with verse 16. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of this month is a feast. Seven days shall unleavened bread be eaten. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a food offering, a burnt offering to the Lord. And here comes this list again. Two bulls from the herd, one ram, and seven male lambs one year old. See that they are without blemish. Also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull, two-tenths for a ram, a tenth you shall offer for each of the seven lambs, and one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is for a regular burnt offering. In the same way, you shall offer daily for seven days the food of a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Okay, so this is Passover, followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover kicked off unleavened bread. And very often, those two terms are used interchangeably, especially in the New Testament. You'll notice he's not mentioning anything about the process of taking the lamb into your home or eating the bitter herbs or anything like that, because this is focusing on the priest's job. What is he offering for the whole nation? Not the individual who would eat unleavened bread. There's the rest of the Seder meal that we looked at. And the first and the seventh days were Sabbath days. And each of those days, you would have the regular daily offering, which would have been doubled. And then on each day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you would include the regular monthly new moon offerings, two bulls, a ram, and seven lambs, plus the goat for a guilt offering. So it's nothing that out of the ordinary, but because it's a special week, you're offering those things every day for Passover. Verse 26, on the day of the first fruits, when you offer a grain offering of new grain to the Lord at your Feast of Weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but offer a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old. Also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs with one male goat to make atonement for you. 
Besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering, you shall offer them and their drink offering. See that they are without blemish. Malachi would really get on the people for offering blemished sacrifices to the Lord. Well, this is another annual sacrifice, the Feast of Weeks. This is known as Pentecost to most of us, the Feast of Weeks. This is when the Holy Spirit came, was at this festival. When they would bring the first fruits of the grain harvest to the Lord, you'd bring that first sheaf and offer it. So he's saying, when you do that, you're also to offer the new moon sacrifices again, the bulls, the ram, the lambs, and the goat. And all these holidays had specific rituals, but what you're seeing is a lot of these were just extra worship. You're doing what you normally would do at the start of the month on top of all that for each holiday. This is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Moving on to chapter 29 now. On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets. Remember the two silver trumpets that were made in uh, chapter 10 of this chapter of this book. You shall offer a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. Also their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. Three tenths of an ephah for the bull, two tenths for the ram, and one tenth for each of the seven lambs. With one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offering of the new moon and its grain offering. And the regular burnt offering and its grain offering. And their drink offering according to the rule for them for a pleasing aroma. A food offering to the Lord. All right, Feast of Trumpets. This is the Hebrew New Year. It's called today Rosh Hashanah, which is the Hebrew for the head of the year or the chief of the year. The Feast of Trumpets. And it's in the seventh month where you've got most of the major holy days in the Hebrew calendar in the seventh month. And this would have been a Sabbath day. You would have not done your regular work. And you would have had the usual increase of sacrifices, although you may have noticed they're only offering one bull instead of the two, the one, and the seven. I don't have a reason for you. That's just what it says. And as it says at the end, what you need to be noticing is all of these things are to stack on top of each other. He's saying don't offer the bull, the goat, the rams instead of the daily offering or instead of the Sabbath day double offering, but on top of that, this is important, the Lord is saying you're not to ever stop the morning and evening sacrifices. All right, verse 7. On the tenth day of this seventh month, there it is again, you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourselves. You shall do no work, but you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old. See that they are without blemish, and their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering, beside the sin offering of atonement, and the regular burnt offering, and its grain offering, and their drink offerings." This is the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is the Hebrew for that. This was less of a feast and more of a fast. It says afflict yourselves. The idea is is usually understood to be it's a day of fasting. This is when the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood. Notice how he said in verse 11, besides the sin offering of atonement. He's saying don't stop doing that. This is in addition to that. And it was to be a Sabbath day with all those additional sacrifices. And there were many other rituals to be performed, but again, this is, this is adding on and providing the, the priest's duty in addition to the people's duty as well. All right, verse 12 through 38, this is the longest section. 
On the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. So once again, this is the third holiday in the seventh month. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. You shall offer a burnt offering for a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Keep track with me here. Thirteen bulls from the herd, two rams, fourteen male lambs a year old. They shall be without blemish, and their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. Three tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also, one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. It's like the 12 days of Christmas here. On the second day, 12 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old, and a partridge in a pear tree. That, that's not in there. Without blemish. With the grain, I don't need someone to come up. That wasn't in my translation. With the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, and the prescribed quantities, also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, and its grain offering, and their drink offerings. On the third day, 11 bulls, notice the number of bulls is decreasing as the week goes on. 11 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. On the fourth day, 10 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the fifth day, nine bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. On the sixth day, eight bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offerings. On the seventh day, seven bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and its drink offering. Are you getting it now? Don't stop doing the daily offerings is God's point. On the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish, and the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bull, for the ram, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. Okay, so seventh month. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, is the name I prefer, Booths is the new newfangled term, and that's really what it was. It was a booth. It was a hut. Tabernacle just means tent. This is when they would dwell in huts for a year at Jerusalem in order to commemorate the wilderness wandering. This is the feast where Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Remember it says the last day, the great day of the feast, because it was a seven-day feast. And it would begin with the Sabbath, more animals than usual. It's doubling the amount of rams and lambs. So instead of one and seven, we have two and 14. And then the one goat, it's always stuck on the end. And then it starts with 13 bulls, working its way down until on the seventh day, you're offering seven bulls. And then on the eighth day, they'd have another Sabbath. They would offer the regular monthly sacrifices to the Lord. So I know all of this is not 
super interesting for you to be reading. It's not entertaining for you. But God put it in the scripture because this is how it was to be done. Anytime you read in the Bible about the Feast of Tabernacles or the Day of Atonement, this is what's going on in the background. When the Lord rebukes them later for not keeping his law and not honoring his sacrifices, this is what he's holding them to. So this is incredibly important. And we need to, I, I know you're not doing this, but just as a reminder for all of us, we need to make sure that we're not allowing ourselves to dismiss sections of Scripture because they do not seem immediately relevant to us. Verse 39 and 40, we'll finish the chapter. These you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts, in addition to your vow offerings and your freewill offerings, for your burnt offerings and for your grain offerings, for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. Again, you can listen to our studies on Leviticus 1 through 7 if you want to know the details of all of those. So Moses, verse 40, told the people of Israel everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So that's the sacrificial calendar. He's got daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, monthly, and then annual sacrifices. You might call those holidays, mostly given for the priests because the average citizen is not going to have to concern himself with these things. But again, we're, we're still in the context of leadership here in the book of Numbers. But notice what he says in verse 39. This is the bare minimum. So this is everything that you're to do, but that doesn't count your votive offerings, your free will offerings, your peace offerings. He also doesn't include guilt or sin offerings there, although who would want to offer those, but they'd still be necessary. In addition to these things, there were to be voluntary and occasional sacrifices offered to the Lord. Voluntary just means I'm going to worship you, Lord, just because. It's a just because offering. You'd bring it to the Lord and offer it to him just because you, you want to have that peace offering, that fellowship offering to the Lord. Then there are also occasions. If you made a vow to the Lord and you needed to pay off the vow, uh, if you were in, the, in a tough spot and you said, Lord, if, if you get me out of this, I'll give you 100 bulls. The Bible is pretty clear. You better deliver those 100 bulls. We're going to talk about that in, in just a minute here. Or maybe there was a time where you sinned, or if you had a, a bout of leprosy that you fought off, there were sacrifices that would be offered for that. So this is not everything. This is the minimum. And by doing this, Moses is passing the responsibility for the spiritual life of Israel down to Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And what we are to learn from this is the importance of regular, routine religion to your spiritual life. That regular, everyday, daily, weekly, monthly, and then annual worship to the Lord. It's similar to how the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, very familiar verses to you. He said, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible always encourages regular, routine, scheduled, fundamental worship to the Lord. Consider Daniel, who prayed three times a day. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. He went to his house, he opened his windows, and he prayed toward Jerusalem three times a day, as was his custom, the passage tells us. He had a routine that not even the law could break. Luke 5.16 tells us that Jesus, Jesus, would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus had a habit of going to the desert, going on top of a mountain, 
wherever it might have been, and praying and seeking the Lord. In fact, there were certain times that the disciples got a little frustrated with Jesus. Hey, man, Peter's like, you're staying in my house, and we did ministry all night. Now it's morning, and everybody's still looking for you, and they're beating down my mama's door. you got to help me here. And Peter, Jesus says, let's go to the next village. Because he had been out praying and seeking the Lord, and he knew what to do next. He made it a habit. The early church, this isn't in Scripture, but we see it in some of the early uh, apostolic fathers' books, like the Didache and so on. They would fast twice a week. Wednesday and Friday, sundown to sundown, were fasting days for the church. That's not a legalistic thing. That's just, Jesus said, when you fast. He said, when I go away, you're going to fast. Well, he went away. We should fast. They made routines for themselves. And we have these things too. We have daily devotions that you ought to be having with the Lord. We have weekly worship. We have twice weekly worship or three times at our church. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night. Maybe you have a home fellowship. Maybe you have a ministry you participate in. We have monthly communion. We're going to be sharing in communion tonight. We do it once a month on Wednesdays, once a month on Sundays. So that about every two weeks we're taking communion together. We have holidays like Christmas. Oh, Christmas isn't in the Bible. Yeah, but these things matter, you guys. This routine matters. This calendar of coming together every week without fail, we come to worship. Or every year, we take a special time to remember the birth of Jesus. Around Easter time, we take special time to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, our church has made a habit of celebrating also Pentecost and Trinity Sunday and Ascension Day to remember these special things. We celebrated Reformation Day not long ago. Now, Tradition can become a hindrance, but the Bible speaks of it very positively throughout the Old Testament, especially as something that is going to support you and sustain you. But there, there's two different modern ideologies that prevent us from enjoying regular routine worship. And the first one is individualism. And th this is the idea that I can't just do what everybody else does because I'm special. I'm so, you just don't know my life and my situation, so I need something unique. I need like a, like a Chipotle bar religion where, yeah, I got some of this and some of that, but no, no onions, thank you very much. And, and I'm being a little silly, but you know what I mean, right? Wow, I just, I, I'm, I, church is in the morning, and I'm not a morning person. Okay, but you're missing out, man. You, you need to be there. You need to, well, you don't need to go to church to be saved. It's like, well, yeah, but it's not recommended. Right? Oh, you don't have to read your Bible every day to be saved. No, but it's not recommended. What do we celebrate Christmas for anyway? That's just kind of not my thing. You know, everyone's so jolly, and I'm really kind of ironic and jaded. That's kind of my whole vibe. And Oh, you've met those people. You know you have. They want to, like, their whole personality is not liking things that everybody else likes. And they always pop up around Christmas time. And it's like, hey, man, this is something that we have agreed to do in order to remember something important. And it brings us joy, and it reminds us about Jesus, and it gets our heart in the right place. We, we don't have to be individualists where it's somehow wrong if you're doing what everybody else is doing. That's not good. If it's part of the community of the faith, there's no reason to participate in it, as long as there's not something sinful attached to it, you understand. But that second ideology is materialism. These people are tons of fun. These are the people that look at something like Christmas, and they say, well, I don't see what's so spiritual about it. You're singing songs. Why don't we just celebrate Jesus' birthday in, in March? What difference does it make? You know, well, who knows when this happened? I mean, maybe it happened in, in August for all we know. And it's like, you're so missing the point, my friend. 
It's like, yeah, but this is when we're, we're doing it. Or maybe there's even a deeper layer of materialism where you don't believe that church is a spiritual thing. You think it's just a community thing. And so you don't feel the need to participate in it because you don't believe it's really doing you any kind of spiritual good. Or I don't pray with the church, not because I don't have time, but because I really don't think there's any value to it. And we start to take apart these things and look at them like a, like a skeptic for some reason. And we say, well, why do I have to go to church this often? Why do I need to take communion for anyway? It's because this is what the church has agreed to do. Some of it is from the Lord. Some of it is just tradition, and that's fine. But we need these things to hold us together. That regular intake of the word, that regular conversation with God in prayer, fellowship with other believers. Man, you've got to be around other Christians. Don't you know that? If you're, doesn't it feel good to come into church sometimes after you've just been beat up for your faith all week long, and then you come in and you're just around other people that are with you? It's like, oh, man, thank the Lord. I'm not crazy. There's some other people here that believe this. It confirms what we believe. It corrects us when we're wrong. And it teaches us to have regular obedience. Well, what about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I'm glad you mentioned that. Your personal relationship with Jesus is whatever goes above and beyond what everybody else is doing. Not the opposite of that. Notice how he says you're still offering votive offerings and free will offerings and peace offerings and all the rest. But this is what everyone is doing. Because you keep doing this in addition to everything you're going to do above that. Above and beyond that. A personal relationship with God is not at the expense of regular worship. It is in addition to regular worship. Many people get that wrong. Well, God and me, you know, we're tight and we don't, you know, I don't need to go to church because it always messes up my relationship with God when I'm around other people. Really? I've heard that one before. When I'm around other Christians, I just I don't feel as close to God. It's like, that's a problem. <laughs> you don't want to get that looked at, man. That's not good. This is where that above and beyond, that's where you develop those special memories with just you and God. All the great men of scripture, they loved the routine. David talked about the joy that he had of going with the throng to worship the Lord. I love being in the hustle and bustle and nobody really knows who I am and it doesn't matter because we're worshiping the Lord Jesus. You know, I, I, it's Christmas time, so we can talk about it now. It's, it's kind of nice to be around everybody else at Christmas time and feel like you're kind of part of something real big. But then when it becomes personal is when you come home and have that personal time with Jesus yourself. And you develop those memories of what God has done. And you pass them on to your children. That's when it becomes a personal relationship. But if a man or a family or a nation abandons regular worship, that's when their spirits are open to attack. When we start devaluing this corporate, public, communal side of this, or even just regular routine in your own life, that's where the attack comes. It's kind of like if there's a guy, this is something you, you see an awful lot, or at least we complain an awful lot, so I'll use it as an illustration. If you have a favorite athlete that just hustles, 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 and then he finally gets paid, right? He finally gets that big contract that just blows everybody's mind, and then the next couple of years he just falls off. Because he's like, whatever, man, I, I got my contract, I'm a star, I'm a somebody. And he starts falling off. He spends more time at home than he does in the, at the field or in the court. It, he's not working as hard. He's not, well, I'm past the fundamentals, man. I don't need those anymore. And then he's swallowed up by the next young guy who's hungry that comes up and, and surpasses him, right? 
So it's the same thing with us. That's why God commanded us to have regular worship, routine worship. And that's why Satan is always attacking your routine. Haven't you found that? You can have a routine for everything else in your life. You try to set a regular prayer time, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. That doesn't make any sense. I do all kinds of things by routine. I wake up on time. I eat the same breakfast every day. I work out every day. I sit home and watch the same TV programs every day. And I fall asleep at the same time more or less every day. But I try to sit and pray. And it's like I have no self-control at all. That's because it's spiritual, guys. It's an attack on your spirit. Don't ever think that you are above the routine. The routine is necessary. It's good and it's for your own benefit. And the benefit of those who are around you. Well, moving on to chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, let's keep this lesson in the back of our minds, and we'll bring it back again when we come to the end of this regular routine religion. Verses 1 and 2, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. We've got some laws about vows now, probably because they were just mentioned a second ago, or perhaps because we had the lesson about Zelophehad's daughters a few chapters prior, and he's going to discuss a relationship between a daughter and her father in just a few minutes. But in any case, we have some laws about vows here. And a vow is a promise made to God with an offering. It's what they had called votive offerings, vow offerings, where you would make a promise to God and you would seal it with a sacrifice. And there was all kinds of versions of this. At one end, you had the Nazarite vow, where the, they would not cut your hair, you'd not cut your beard, you wouldn't taste anything that was off of the vine, you wouldn't touch dead things. And there was a lot of rules associated with that. But it could have been any number of things. We'll see them throughout the Bible that people will make a vow to the Lord. Hannah is going to make a vow to the Lord that if you give me a son, I'm going to dedicate him, Samuel, to the Lord. And she did exactly that. You'll see this throughout the Bible. And verse 2 makes it clear. That a man had no recourse once the vow was made. If you said it to the Lord and sealed it with a sacrifice, you're not getting out of it, pal. This is what you said. God takes it seriously. Solomon would write this later in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5. said, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. <laughs> That's what Ecclesiastes is like, man. Crotchety old Solomon. So pay what you vow. In verse 5, he says, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And that's where we get that famous verse in a few verses where he says, God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. He's not talking about the value of meditative silence. He's saying, when you come into God's house, don't be promising a bunch of stuff because you think it makes you look spiritual. God will take it seriously. And vows continued into the New Testament in Acts 21, Paul takes a Nazarite vow for one of his missionary journeys. He, in chapter 21, I believe it is, he's paying off the vows of some other Christians that were in the Jerusalem church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 mentions those that had given themselves to chastity for the service of the Lord. And the early church had a ton of these, where people would make a vow to the Lord, both male and female, that I'm not going to be married or commit any kind of sexual act because I've given myself to the Lord. And the Bible honors that kind of thing. That was the precursor of the monks and the nuns that became very formalized later. So these are good things to do. 
But let's make it very clear. A vow was not a way to manipulate God. All right, God, if you do this, you have to do it now because I made a sacrifice. No, it is a way to commit yourself to him formally and seriously through an act of performative prayer. Saying, God, this is what I need. You don't say something like, all right, Lord, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. It says, God, I'm desperate. Let's just use an example. I need money. My daughter is sick, whatever it might be. And I'm, I'm offering this sacrifice to you. If you heal my daughter, if you provide for my needs, whatever it is, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dedicate her to you. Or I'm going to give you a, a tenth or a fiftieth percent of whatever I give. The, the point here is that nobody can invoke God's help with a promise and then cancel it later. That's important. Kids like to do this a lot. Say, God, if you, if you get me out of this, <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never chew bubble gum again so long as I live. And it is actually in the context of foolish vows that we get to the next section here. Verse 3. If a woman, in contrast to the man we just read about, if a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she's bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband while under her vows, meaning if she vowed a vow that stood and now she's getting married, or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But... If on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand." But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. The laws concerning vows for women are different, hence the longer section for them here. A woman's male authority figure, whether her father or her husband, had veto rights over her vows to the Lord. If a father or a husband or a new husband after a betrothal, heard of a vow that a woman had made, he had the authority to deny it. And the point is, she would not be bound by it. She could not say, I'm sorry, dad, I'm sorry, husband, this, you know, I have to keep it. Otherwise, the vow would be binding upon her. And verse six, and, and there's another one, gives the main reason for this. It says, a thoughtless utterance, meaning something harmful here. This is not just, I don't like that, you can't do it. This, he says, a young woman in her father's house. Think of an 11-year-old girl going off to church camp. 
And she comes back and says, Daddy, I swore to God that I would never be married because I love God just so much. And Dad goes, I don't think so. You're 11 years old. You don't get to make that decision. But I promised God. The law is clear. She's, she's forgiven, and there's no punishment for that. I would imagine an 11-year-old boy was stuck with that because the Lord is holding them to a high standard as well. Because the man had authority over his daughter or his wife, perhaps the, the woman had made a vow before she came into the husband's house, and uh, it was something that would have been disruptive to their relationship or any other such thing. He's responsible. The man, the husband, or the father, as the case may be, is responsible for her well-being. So what God is doing is he's adding an extra layer of protection here. He's, remember we just read about foolish vows, that if you make it, you have to do it. He says, the person that has authority over her and her life needs to help her make sure she doesn't step into a foolish vow. Again, consider a young girl in a, in a moment of passion. I'm 11 years old. I'm never going to get married because I love God just so much. Or imagine this situation. A husband goes off to war and he's gone for a long time. And the wife vows, when this, when this child that I'm about to give birth to is born, then, uh, then I will give him to the Lord and, and, uh, like Samuel. And the husband comes home from war and she says, oh, you came home safe, so now we've got to give our kid away. And dad goes, no, I don't think so. He's staying right here. Oh, but I promised God. Yeah, but he has the authority to nullify that vow. But only when he first heard of it. On the day that he heard of it. He could not change his mind after six weeks and say, you know, I changed my mind. He doesn't get to do that. If he does, he says whatever penalty would have been poured out upon the woman is now going to be poured out upon him. He says, you, can, you have the first right to refuse, and then after that, no right to refuse. He talks about a woman fasting, for example. I'm going to fast for 30 days. Okay, go ahead. Well, if day 11, she's looking rough. Sorry, pal, you, you said it was okay. And now it's between her and God. Or perhaps, you know, Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians 7 that there are people that will make a, will fast for a time from sexual activity. And if she's, I'm going to fast for a month from sexual activity. And he says, okay, go ahead. And then you get halfway through and you're getting cranky Sorry, fella, you had your chance, and you, you didn't do this. This is also, you can see, protecting uh, the family in certain respects, because this is the kind of thing that can and sometimes even does still happen. But only when he first heard of it. A widow or a divorcee had no such authority over her. So if her husband is dead, if they've been divorced, I think you can safely include in this list maybe a, an older woman who's no longer living under her father's authority but has not yet married. The, remember, these laws are meant to be representative. They're meant to give the judges of Israel a guideline for how to make a decision. So I think that probably would have been safely to assume. And God would honor the authority of the father and of the husband, and there was no danger of divine retribution in such cases, which implies, does it not, that for the ones that stood, there was a danger of divine retribution. And so take your vows seriously. God, if you deliver me out of this, I'll go on the mission field. God hears that. Be careful. Let your words be few before the Lord. Verse 16, these are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. That's important to note too because the Bible says a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Once she is married, dad cannot show up and continue to boss her around. What we see in this passage that transcends the context of vows is the biblical lesson of the headship of the husband 
in the marriage relationship. This is a subject that the world absolutely abhors. This is where we are called repressive and sexist and pick your ist and it comes our way. And here's the thing. Most folks in the church don't much like it either. I've heard more yeah buts or well or don't you think on this subject than just about anything else. Often because it is landing right in somebody's front yard. However, nothing is simpler than to prove from scripture that the husband is the head of the wife and she is under his authority. Which is exactly what we're going to do now. Genesis chapter 2 verses 22 through 24. The very beginning. You know the background of this. God made Adam. Adam was lonely. And so God said, that's not good. It was the first thing that God had created that he said, this is not good. And so he took his rib and he made her into a woman. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last, at last, he says, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the beginning, God created man first. He gave man dominion over the world he had made. Then he provided a woman to be his helper. He said, can we really apply to that passage in order to have modern ethical rules about marriage and relationships? Yes, we can. Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 6, used this exact passage to explain why God hates divorce. Because this is how God made it in the beginning. Paul would ap appeal to this passage in 1 Timothy 2.13 to say why he doesn't allow female teachers in the church. He said, for Adam was created first and then Eve. Also, Eve was the one that gave in to the serpent. Whereas Adam listened to his wife, which he should not have done. So isn't that splitting hairs? Well, they're hairs that Jesus and Paul split, so we're going to split them. From the very beginning... The husband was the leader, his wife was his helper, and there was authority there. We talked about this in our kingdom man study, that by he naming her, that was a very significant authoritative thing that he did. And Paul makes it very plain, whereas it's kind of implied in the book of Genesis, Paul makes it clear. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Own husbands is good, not every husband. Your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. How much the head? Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit in everything to their husbands. How much submission is a wife to have to her husband? Well, how much does the church submit to Jesus? That much. This is always a fun conversation in premarital counseling. Although I haven't really had much pushback on this, to be honest with you. But we really want to put it out there. Notice also how the example of Jesus supports this distinction. It does not demolish it. There's a lot of folks today that are saying, because Jesus died on the cross and we're all saved equally and male, there is no male and female, therefore these rules don't apply. They were just for the culture. They don't apply to us today. But it is in the New Testament context of the risen Christ that Paul writes this. He says that marriage is a living parable of the relationship between Christ and the church. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, I want you to understand, he said, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. 
Head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul compares the relationship between a wife and her husband to the relationship of the Son of God and God the Father. Significant. This authority is plain in Scripture. And this status brings along with it great responsibility. We're not going to dive too far into that half of the lesson tonight, that a husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, right? Willing to throw himself in the way of of the danger for her. And we see that the responsibility here in chapter 30, that the father, but then also later the husband, had a responsibility to protect his wife from even her own thoughtless utterances, a protection that he himself did not have but that he was able to provide for her. The Bible ordains roles for men and women to play in the family. The man's role is to lead, to protect, to provide for his family. You know what the Bible says about men that don't provide for their family? He says, if a man does not provide for his own family, 1 Thessalonians, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I hear people say things, and usually feminist theologians will say, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that man's supposed to provide for his family. Yeah, it does. Paul equates failure to take the husbandly role in a relationship with denying the faith. So those things are connected and important. The wife's role is to keep the home, to raise the children, and support her husband. In fact, 1 Peter 3 verse 1 tells us, even if your husband isn't saved, you stay there and support him and love him. Because maybe if you do that, and you see how following Jesus has made you a better wife and a better woman, then he'll be won over by that alone. I remember there was, we were talking about male and female issues at a, at a youth camp that we did, and that was one of the things that led one of the young men to get saved. Because he said, I never had a dad. I've, I've been raised by my mom, and she was not a great mother to him. He says, and I have no idea how to be a man, but you guys are talking about Jesus, and this is what, the kind of man that I want to be. And he got saved. How cool is that? So, well, wait a minute, where does it say that a woman is supposed to keep the home and raise children and all that? Titus, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Can you see why some people really don't like the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus? He says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Not irreverent, not slanderers or gossips, and not slaves to wine. The Bible was preaching against wine moms a long time ago. <laughs> I'm dead serious. They are to teach, instead, they are to teach what is good and train the young women to do what? To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, as in not sexually promiscuous, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, we live in a time and in a culture where that means pretty much nothing to the average person. And then you ask the question, well, wait a minute, does that mean that a Christian woman is never to have a job? Well, Proverbs 31, if you read Proverbs 31, describes a working woman. That she was running her household, meaning she knew who was working. She had people working for her. She was working hard to produce clothing and candles for her own family. She was feeding them. She was running the business, taking care of them. But here's the thing. It is in service to her family and the running of the household, not just to further her own career aspirations. That's the key difference. 
So, well, I, I think I, I want to go to work. I don't want to stay home with my kids. I don't want to, okay, fine. But why are you doing it, though? Is it because you want to have independence from your family? Well, that's no good. I just want to be able to have my own thing that he's not a part of and those kids aren't a part of. Man, that is so dangerous. We don't let men get away with that. Why do you work? Well, I just can't stand being around those people all day. <laughs> it's no, no better when a woman does it. Do you find being at home and taking care of children demeaning to you? Then you've got to repent and get over that. Because that is something that the Lord honors and venerates in the scripture. And not only that, that a lot of people that you love and care about very much do. Perhaps even your own mother. And if that's something you find demeaning, then think about how that might apply to them. Is it because you're trying to assert yourself over your husband? I've got to have my own money so that he can't boss me around? Well, that's no good. We even tell our, our folks in the premarital counseling, I don't care who's working, you guys don't, don't have this separate bank account thing going on. Well, that's mine and that's hers. Because I want her to see what I'm doing. I don't want him to see what I'm doing. That's just dangerous, man. Is it because you feel all kinds of cultural pressure to get out there and make something of yourself and somebody's looking down on you because, well, I, I really would love to, to raise a family and be a good mom. <laughs> oh. And don't act like that doesn't happen. It happens all the time. Even in the church. Okay, yeah, 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 but what do you want to do? What do you want to be? Don't you want to become? Don't you want to accomplish something? As if it's not something, it's not accomplishing something to take care of a house or that it's not work to take care of a house and raise them kids. There was a short time where Catelyn and I, she was working part-time and I was working part-time and I had to be home with them babies and I learned a great respect <laughs> for that job because it is a job. I thought I'd be home, you know, getting up late, watching some football that I missed the day before. Surprisingly, they want to eat every day. <laughs> Is it because you're chasing a certain lifestyle? Well, we want to be, I want to be rich. I want to be, you know what ends up happening a lot of time? Not every time, but a lot of times is you get people that are both working so that they can afford the child care to take care of their own kids. I've, I've, I had this, I've had this many times coming to counseling. It's like, we're both working. It's crazy. But like, I feel like all the money goes to daycare. All the money is going. It's like, then, then what are we doing? Why not go home and take care of it yourself? Is it just a vanity thing? I mean, we don't let guys get away with that either. Why do you define yourself by your job and by your accomplishments instead of by your family? My mother went to work when I was in high school because we were about to start going to a Christian high school that offered a free scholarship to a local university. She hadn't worked since before I was born. But she went back, not because she wanted to start a career at Nationwide, but because of what the family needed. And that's different. We have to look at these things. But the Bible is very plain that the husband's job is to be out there taking care of his family, providing, working, laboring, sacrificing himself, his time, his body, his energy, his loves, and for his wife to be making that house a home. And if that involves in some degree outworking, then more power to you. Wonderful. But we should never in the church be looking down upon women and families that choose to do that. I could start a whole other conversation about what the Bible has to say about women in government. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 12 said that it was a reproach and a shameful thing to Israel that it had women as its leaders. Implication being the men were not stepping up. It was, what about Deborah? Man, read the story of Deborah. The whole point of that is to make Barak look really wimpy. Like, really, you can't go out of war without this female prophet? She tells him. She goes, what do you need me for? You go fight. I, don't, I can't do it without you there. She goes, fine, but a woman's going to get credit for all your victories. But we don't like saying these things. We don't like talking about these things out loud. 
or maybe around your wife, gentlemen. Now, there's obviously a whole list of responsibilities that a husband has too, but I feel like in many respects, the husband's responsibilities are not under assault like a wife's, like a wife's would be. Yeah, you better get out there and work. You better get out there and take care of. You better hustle. You better grind. You better make the money if you want to earn all of this. But we never say anything about how Ephesians 5.33 says women respect your husbands. Or 1 Timothy 2.9, that a woman's adornment should be modest. Or Proverbs 11.22, where it says a woman that lacks discretion is like a leaky faucet. Or Proverbs 27.15, that says a contentious, quarrelsome woman is like dwelling in the corner of a house. Proverbs 6.25 tells us that women should not be promiscuous. 1 Corinthians 7.4 says that neither of you, husband or wife, should withhold yourself from the other sexually unless you have both agreed to it. The Bible says that the husband does not have rights to his own body, but the wife does. And the wife doesn't have rights to her own body, but the husband does. But we live in a day where that, that feminist attitude has infected the church, and we despise this lesson. And the, what I'm trying to draw out by reading all these scriptures to you that I know you're probably not getting all of them here is that this thing that we say, well, well, what difference does it make if I don't want to have kids or if I want to go out and be outside the home? Or what difference does it make if I don't get married or this or that? Say, what I want you to hear is all of that is cultural. It's not biblical. For better or worse, you didn't get it from scripture which should cause you to step back when we start to look down upon passages like the one we just read, where it says the husband has the right to nullify a vow that the wife made to the Lord. The Bible establishes authority in the home and places it in the hands of the husband. Proverbs 31.3, Bathsheba, you know who that is, don't you? That was Uriah's former wife, who then became David's wife, who then gave birth to Solomon. And at the end, he includes a little piece of advice from his mother, And she said, do not give your strength to women, my son, your ways to those who destroy kings. And that's primarily a sexual warning. But I think men today, especially in the church, have not heeded that warning and are constantly looking to the women in our midst for permission about what it means to be a man, to be a leader, to be a husband, to be a pastor And even if we say things, maybe less, this is less so in the church, but you say things like, well, I want to get married to a woman that just wants to be a wife and mother. I used to say that. And when I was in high school and college, I would get girls that would yell at me for that. Say, well, what do you want to do if you fall in love with a girl that wants to be, have a career? Well, then I don't know if that's something that someone I'd want to marry. How dare you? They'd holler and scream and get all loud with mean stuff. And you're so insecure. I heard that one a lot. But where does this lead us? We end up with pastors that are these, these passive. You ever hear this one? Well, I'm pastor so-and-so and really should be my wife up here because she's the spiritual one and, and she really is better at this than I am. It's like, shame on you, dude. Shame on you. Was David like that? David had other problems, but it wasn't that one. But what about our daughters? Our daughters are being shamed out of a desire to be mothers. They're encouraged towards promiscuity, whether that's in, on purpose. In some cases, it is on purpose. We are actually saying this to them, or sometimes it's just by osmosis. And we get all these, these women that they feel like, if I stop now and I start getting married now, if I settle down now, or if I start having children now, then I won't accomplish anything. And you get an increasing number of women and men that are regretting that they didn't get started sooner. 
Malachi makes it very plain that part of the reason God ordained marriage was he was seeking godly offspring. But if we're going to shame our daughters out of being mothers, I'm using we in a broad cultural sense here, we're going to permit and celebrate and march in the street in favor of promiscuity, why in the world should we expect our men to step up and be faithful and be masculine if the opposite is not required? But you know what's so funny, but like in a horrible kind of way? There is a, there's a growing trend on the internet of people that are not Christians, that are stepping up and shouting this stuff at the top of their lungs. They're shouting about, you know what? These, these men, in many cases, standing up. That's it. Forget it. I'm sick and tired of it. I want a wife. I want a mother who's going to submit to me while I lead. And they get a lot of mileage out of going on the street and saying this to people and hearing these women freak out. Or there are these ladies that are standing up and saying, women, that's enough with the feminist stuff. We've got to get back to what we're supposed to do. And here's the problem. They're trying to have hookup culture and all that stuff. And they, they get, haven't realized you can only have that in Christ. But I'll tell you this. Shame on me if I ever allow some lunkhead on the internet to say God's truth louder than me from this pulpit. Husbands are to love and lead their wives. Women are to respect and submit to their husbands. The kids need it, the churches need it, and society needs it. You can't fight sexual perversion at the weird extreme, get rid of transgender stuff, get rid of hormone blockers, if you're not going to fix this. If you're going to keep on saying men and women, what happens in marriage, it doesn't matter, do whatever you want. That's at the root of all of this stuff. That's got to be repaired too. But why don't we like hearing this? And I'm not saying you don't. I'm just saying in general. Why, why do I get more emails and more conversations after service about this topic than just about any other? Because we have failed to participate in the routine of religion and of worship. We're no longer getting our ideas from Scripture. We're no longer bowing the knee regularly to God in worship. We're not serving one another. We're not tithing. We're not evangelizing. But instead, we propagandize ourselves with what we find on the screens. And so you get out of sync with God's word. Every culture needs correction. That's why we send out missionaries. We're not immune to that. The simple question is, is this, is God right or is he wrong? Is his standard the ideal we're shooting for or isn't it? When you get disconnected from that daily, monthly, weekly, annual worship, you start to compromise and you start to become just like everybody else. And once you do that, there's no stopping it. If you want to rebuild gender in this country, you got to rebuild all of it, not just part of it, not just the parts that shock you, the parts that you kind of agree with too, in addition or in submission to the scripture. We've got to have humility before Christ and his word. Even if you don't agree, I don't care if you agree. What did God say? That is what we learn when we regularly come to the Lord in the routine of worship and submission. David said in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we are living in a dry, thirsty, weary time, but the only well that's going to satisfy you is the word of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a strong stand, continue to take a strong stand on male-female relations in this church. Husbands, lead with love. Don't provoke your wife or your children to anger. Wives, submit to your husbands out of respect for them. Not only on this issue, though, are we going to take a strong stand. Anything else that our God has taught us. 
And the way that you're inoculated against the next weird thing that comes down the line, you know, when we've pushed whatever the thing you hate far into the rearview mirror and the next one comes down, how are you going to be protected against that? Through a regular religious routine that's going to reinforce righteousness in your life.